Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker's here. Dwayne, the producer, in the back. And uh, we're so grateful that you're spending time with us on Impact of Influence. And you can find Impact of Influence on Facebook. And Seton, we, we touched on this in an episode because it was happening as we were recording. That is the state's response. Right. We, our last episode, we were primarily focused on the writ of prohibition filed by Alec Murdoch's defense team. And as we were recording, or moments before we were about to record, the state's response to the motion for a new trial dropped. And so we didn't dive into it. We didn't even have the full... We, we talked. No, yet. we did have it, I mean, but deep, we, we, we talked about it, but yeah. just not... Um, we had a, a more of a chance to really look at it, listen to a, a few podcasts. The lawyer you know does a fantastic job. He, of course, he's from the defense perspective of breaking things down, but really just had more of a chance to process. Uh, so let's get to it. The state's response to defend this motion for new trial and state's motions to strike. This is all, of course, about the potential Becky Hill comments made to the jury. Let's... I will actually give you the beginning of this because it's kind of important and interesting. Uh, State of South Carolina, County of Colleton, State of South Carolina v. Richard Alexander Murdoch. Stamped by Rebecca Hill. Yes. So that was interesting. Yeah, she's stamping her own her own. She's uh, mentioned in this. She's yes. mentioned in this filing, and she's you know stamping, stamping it. it. Um, so here it goes. Richard Alexander Murdoch was convicted for the murders of his wife Maggie Murdoch and son Paul Murdoch by a jury before this court in Colleton County on March 2nd, 2023. This court sentenced Murdoch to consecutive sentences of life without parole on March March 3rd, 2023. After filing a notice of appeal and during the pendency of that appeal, Murdoch filed in the Court of Appeals of South Carolina on September 5th, 2023, a motion to suspend appeal and for leave to file motion for new trial. On October 17th, 2023, the Court of Appeals granted the request to hold the appeal in abeyance, probably saying it wrong, and remanded the matter to this court to permit Murdoch to file his motion pursuant to Rule 29B. Goes on to says other things about that. So that is about uh, the, so they have the, the Murdoch team has the appeal and they filed something that said, can we stay on the appeal? Can we just wait on that to find out if this first one is even going to count, Right. So that was that's what that first kind of section's about. Right. And then they go on to kind of talk about some of the things that were in the defense uh, motion for a new trial. Uh, they talk about some of the affidavits. I think one juror, uh, only one of the jurors participated actually in the deliberations. The egg juror was that uh, seven. What's the egg juror's number? Oh, I, my, 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 I don't my know. my paper out. Well, um, she, she, she did not deliberate because she was dismissed. Um, that's what they t- like, uh, not interrupt you, but I'm just going to say it. In support of his claim, Murdoch offers affidavits from one juror participating in deliberations. One. One who was removed for dishonestly concealing her own improper communications about the case. That is important. And two hearsay affidavits from his counsel's paralegal. Murdoch additionally advances a sweeping conspiratorial theory about wholly irrelevant Facebook posts with scant evidence to support it. You know, to explain that, why they say that one is a hearsay affidavit. 
Well, Holly Miller is the paralegal for Dick Harputlian, and she interviewed several jurors, and she did an affidavit about her communications with them, but these jurors themselves did not sign their own affidavit. Right. So it is a little bit confusing. Why why wouldn't they sign their own affidavit? Correct. Section one, law and procedure. This says colorable claims of after-discovered improper external influence on a jury may necessitate a judicially conducted inquiry to confirm the validity of the verdict as free from external influence through which defendant must show actual prejudice. It goes on to say that the law permits but skeptically receives motions for new trials based on after-discovered evidence, after the verdict came in. And they say in, this, in their argument, and never does the law permit highly motivated convicts to put their own jury on trial. So your thoughts is we don't have to read all of this in this section, but what stands out to you? Well, one thing that stood out to me in this argument was that they said not every inappropriate comment by a member of the court staff to a juror rises to the level of constitutional error. And they cite case that was green, and the, he was, uh, I believe, was a bailiff that had made some comments. And they say, additionally, jurors are presumed to follow the law as instructed to them to include instructions of what constitutes proper evidence to consider in deliberations. And such instructions are usually deemed to have cured the erroneous exposure to improper evidence or argument. What they're leading into is they were told over and over again by Judge Newman to ignore any outside noise. Every time the jury took a break, Judge Newman said, uh, do not discuss the case. And now, I mean, obviously the argument would be, but how much can you block out? And and should it be a member of the court that is saying these things? I mean, she, if indeed she did say that. They did the uh, prima fascia, which is, I think, I believe it means at first glance, uh, showing a defendant is entitled to relief is necessary before an evidentiary hearing can be granted. That is what, I, I think that our Pooley and Griffin don't know exactly what's in their mind, but they would at least want that. They don't necessarily think that everything's going to be tossed right away. Right. They want this evidentiary hearing to look into these allegations. And in, in their argument, they're saying that there's not enough, in, in, in essence, because uh, they say it's very limited in an evidentiary hearing. The, they say there's three things here. Mo- motion filed. Pertains to evidence typically conceived as facts, which could have been presented to a jury at trial relevant to guilt or innocent, is such as would probably change the result of a new trial. And that's important, right? That is important because that's that. what they're saying is it doesn't matter if these statements were made if they didn't influence the jurors' decisions in any way. They also say, that as part two of that, has been discovered since the trial, which I think we could say that. Three, could not, by the exercise of due diligence, have been discovered before the trial. I think we could didn't happen before, so. It is material to the issue of guilt or innocence. They would argue, the state, that it doesn't matter. Okay, this is where we get to the following questions, okay? This is, yeah, these this are is the important. ones that they, that they think should be asked. Because this is what was asked uh, in this, this green thing, where he was a bailiff, and he made, did they, you know, he made comments allegedly to the jurors, and then the judge asked the following questions, so that's what the state says, whoever is going to preside over this should ask, what are they? Yep. Was your verdict guilty on both charges, and is that still your verdict? Was your verdict based 100% on the testimony, evidence, and law presented at trial? Was the verdict influenced in, in any manner by communications with any bailiffs or 
any other person outside the 12-member jury? Did you have communication with any bailiffs or third party not part of the jury? And if so, please relay to the court what those communications were. So this is also, we need to mention, why they're talking about bailiffs and all this, this is because this green case that they're referencing, they're, they're saying this bailiff had improper communications. I think there's a little bit of a difference there because a bailiff is not an elected official. However, they are a member of the court, right? And they're a member of the court, but I, I would think a, a clerk of court would be held to a little bit of a higher standard than a bailiff. Perhaps. They add on this as a, as a footnote. In the present case, we are now many months, documentaries and juror interviews removed from the verdict. And so the question of, is that still your verdict, is not one of the one of uh, probative value. It's true. I mean, because the, after the, the after the trial was over, the jury members were free to watch, listen, go to social media, do mm-hmm. whatever they wanted. Right. And, so that yeah. that could have changed their vote, whether consciously or subconsciously. They talk about the complaining juror and each juror who engaged in the final deliberation and the alleged improper communication communicator, or in this case, the clerk, with a mind to at least one whether communication actually occurred, all right? If so, it's context and substance. Two, the number of jurors exposed to improper communication. Three, the weight of the evidence properly before the jury. And four, the likelihood the curative measures were effective in reducing the prejudice. So, And the lawyer, you know, in his YouTube video talked about it doesn't matter if it was one juror or all jurors. If, if one juror was unduly influenced, then that's all it takes is one. And he, he talked about the lawyer you know also talked about this part of it where it says uh, one of their arguments the state makes is that the court should not permit interrogation of the jurors by the parties or the attorneys. And they talk about how they did their duty. Yeah, these time these jurors have committed six weeks to serving on this jury. Jury is a cornerstone of civic duty and that this could possibly discourage other people from wanting to participate in a jury. And I, I don't think that is a reasonable argument because you know, this is so rare, one. Two, one of the things the lawyer you know said, the way they worded it is, should not permit interrogation. That sounds like there's a swinging light bulb and they're like, what did you do? But that doesn't mean you can't, he, he was saying, you know, it's common to question well, and we've, people. We've mentioned before, if there is an evidentiary hearing, this is not uh, open to the public. This would be conducted by either Judge Newman or whoever they Deem if they say Judge Neiman is not the proper person, this will be conducted not in front of anyone other than the court staff. There won't be anybody else. We you'll get transcripts, but that's it. And I, I wish I could give credit to who said this, but I I had heard a talking head say it could be just the judge asking questions, or they could allow attorneys to ask questions. So we the, the, the evidentiary hearing. If, if, if and when we get to that, we'll have a whole bunch of questions on how that works. Yeah, and I think an evidentiary hearing is something that does not happen often. So I, th- I think a lot of people are just guessing exactly how this may or may not proceed. Like our guest last time, John was talking about how you know a lot of this is. He's like, "Wow, we don't uncharted territory here." Uh, so section two, uh, trial to the end of the Murdoch trial. Separately sourced reports of improper discussions and social media posts were brought to the court and investigated resulting in the excusal of juror 785, known as... The egg juror. Who knew, who now raises allegations he or she expressly denied to the court when examined. We should tell you why she's referred to as the egg juror. Oh, yeah. I think we've, we've told people before when she was uh, 
dismissed from the juror at the she was asked if she had anything left in the jury room. And I guess another one of the jurors had brought in some eggs and she said, Judge Newman said, well, would you like your eggs? And she said, yes. And <laughs> We're people like, giggled. giggled. Yeah. And so the, the first part of this state argument is they talk about how many times Judge Newman, they list them all. Judge Newman told the jury not to listen to any outside things. And he also instructed the jury. They would only accept the evidence presented. And so they, they go over and over and how he said that so many times. In the next part of their argument, they say that statements attributed to Hill by juror 630 resemble the ones made in court by the state. Well, should we say, okay, 630 also, it's really interesting. 630 uh, has a relationship with egg juror. She is a tenant. So there's there are a couple of tenant relationships. There were these affidavits that were submitted by other tenants who said that the egg juror discussed the case and that's why she was dismissed. But now this juror number six. 30 is also uh, a tenant of the egg juror. Right. They're connected. They're connected. You know, in small area like that, people can be connected, but that's super close connection. She, she, she seems like she has quite the landlord uh, business going. <laughs> uh, and and when they, I said the, the similar statements that maybe they're saying Becky said it, but maybe it was in their open, in its opening statements, the state said about body language, watch those closely, watch his expressions. Listen to what he's saying. Listen to what he's not saying, which is very similar to what 630 said that Becky Hill said. So it's possible that 630 was misremembering uh, where they heard these things. So they are saying, hey, these people heard this stuff, but it wasn't from Becky. Right. It was in it was in statements made actually by the prosecution. The next argument, the court thoroughly investigated allegations of improper communications by juror 785 and ultimately dismissed the juror for those communications but gave no weight to the supposed Facebook post reported to the court by Clerk Hill in a conversation. In the defense and Alex filing that mentioned the Facebook thing, Judge Newman said at the time that it had nothing to do with Facebook. Remember when Eggly yes. talked? So they just say want to throw that out. Oh, I think that's true. Um, we had a discussion about, I think both of us were in the court the day that the egg juror was dismissed mm-hmm. and how she was up there and in front of a packed courthouse. Oh, yeah. A large packed courthouse, and she's being questioned by the judge in front of everyone, and he, he did tell her. He said that for all intents, he thought that you were, you were great juror. a great juror. But it still had to be embarrassing. It right? had to be embarrassing. And she said, I, if I recall correctly, she even said, does this have to do with my ex-husband? And he said, no, no, it's not to do with your ex-husband. Right, and I'm bringing that up because another one of the arguments that has been made was that the egg juror was asked if the clerk discussed anything with her about the case or the or the jury. And she said, not that I'm aware of. But we said, she, you know, that's a little bit... I mean, the question was by Judge Newman. During, this is, uh, during well, right. she was being dismissed. Yeah. The question was, so has she, Clerk Hill, discussed the case with any of the jurors? Has the clerk discussed anything about the case with, with anyone on the jury? And she says... No, not that I'm aware of. So they're going to hold that up as, well, now she's saying it was. Now she's changed her mind. I think both of us are in agreement that, I don't know if it's true or not, but I do know that under those circumstances, in front of all those people, you're getting the news that you're going to be kicked off. You don't don't know where your eggs are. I was embarrassed for her. I was. I was. Even though he said she did a great job. Yeah. He said you were a great juror, you know, whatever. But then they're not really saying that. No, they're not they're saying that. They're not saying that. And this, this, this argument by the state is saying that she's not reputable. They also tell in the, in the uh, 
response, they mentioned where she works. And uh, that was troublesome at the beginning of the trial when someone mentioned where the people worked. They got in trouble. Why are they mentioning it in here? I don't know. Uh, Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh meal is never frozen and is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. What did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact 50 and use code impact 50 five oh to get 50 percent off your first box plus 20 percent off your next box that codes impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50 percent off your first box and 20 percent off your next box while your subscription is active impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50 percent off your first box and 20 percent off your next box while your subscription is active. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger. For the ones who get it done. The Facebook thing, you can go back and hear us talk about basically a post they thought was by Edger's ex. It wasn't by the ex. Then they couldn't even find the post, whether it existed or not. It was on something like... Uh, Walterboro. The mouth. Or the mouth, mouth of Walterboro. Walter, I don't know what <laughs> no, it was. It but you, you want to read because you've, you found this kind of funny about what, um, oh, yeah. what they said. I think it's page 14. Uh, page 14. What, yeah, about oh yeah when this man was making this post, what he said in his apology post. The when, man who, who was not the Edger's husband, yes. but the post they're referring to. What did they say? When Clerkill tried to find the post again, she could not, but found another post by another account with her ex-spouse's name that apologized for deleting a post made while drunk and possessed by Satan. And after some discussion, <laughs> and then they write, and they actually write in the legal thing, after some discussion about the feasibility of finding the devil-afflicted, suspected ex-husband, the court said we cannot find him. And it wasn't him. It was somebody with the same name, I think. Yes. But the devil-afflicted suspect. Yeah, it's crazy. He so, admitted to taking to the bottle. Let's see. What else? And the jury never deliberated with 785 or alternate 741. And there are two of the people that are saying that Becky Hill said something. Right. I think was, 741 was the alternate. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. So 741 was the alternate, and she's the only remaining alternate. And I guess in Becky Hill's book, uh, she did not have a flattering description of 741, said that she she wasn't paying attention that well and that she was uh, looking more at the gallery than she was at the witnesses who were testifying. And so the state is going to argue that she's lashing out at Becky Hill. Yes. That's going to be the argument. And I forgot to bring my Becky Hill book today. Oh, we had it with I us. know, because I wanted to read that one portion, but that's um, okay. And then and they also mentioned here that Joe McCullough is representing 630. McCullough also assumed representation of juror 630, and so represents each of the jurors who provided affidavits to Murdoch. Joe has not allowed people he represents to be interviewed by SLED. I think he has very good reasons for that. 
There's, Talk to him about it. Yeah, there's a lot of questions about whether SLED is the proper uh, agency to be investigating this. I believe when Dick Harputlian and Jim did that press conference on the steps of the Court of Appeals in South Carolina, they questioned that, and I think they may have asked the FBI to step yeah, in, but they, they that did not that. happen, and SLED is investigating. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to Joe soon about his reasons and some of the problems he has with this state uh, argument. And jurors may not testify about what went on behind the scenes. That's uh, they're saying is is not that's sacred. You're that's not sacred. allowed to you're not allowed to question people about deliberation. They said exactly right. So that they throw that out. Read that part. Yeah, what the the part that says the state's motion to strike all materials as regards to Murdoch's claim regarding the Facebook post uh, book deal, post trial media interactions, and immaterial, impertinent, and scandalous. I don't think that's a legal thing. You can't just say, scandalous. it's too scandalous for the court. <laughs> we cannot have it. Well, it was scandalous, that's it's, for sure. This one says, all facts averred in, in Murdoch's motion are true. The motion fails to help make a prima facie, I hope I said it right, showing that he's entitled to an evidentiary hearing relief. They just go hard on all, like, and I, I, why wouldn't they? They want him in jail. They said, uh, it's an attempt to craft a breathtaking conspiracy narrative. It ultimately boils down to a single constitutional allegation. Clark Hill told jurors not to believe defendant, therefore violating his rights to an impartial jury. Their argument on this part is, okay, let's assume she said something. Right. And they're saying it didn't um, have any effect. I think this is a good time to bring up this, this uh, that's been uh, talked about a lot, uh, just making the rounds of social media. I think Fitz News mentioned this, as well as uh, the Presumption uh, podcast, about this would versus could standard. They're saying in response, just on social media, I'm sure there'll be some sort of official response, that the standard involving a court official like Becky Hill would make a difference. Like it would have definitely, if, if, oh, I if her you. saying these things would, her saying to watch body language or whatever she may or may not have said, her saying these things, it's not just would it have changed your your opinion of guilt or innocent. Could it have changed? And that's a huge difference. That's a huge difference. So it might have, or it definitely didn't. I would assume the argument is going to be, a lot of people don't know what influences them, right? You still to go back to and change time and really think of where your mind ago. was at that point in time. Yeah. Well, and, you know, I think that I've noticed a lot of people mentioning on social media, people are very upset that he may get a new trial. And Fitz had a really interesting article about this, or their weekend review was really good. I really think it's it's not so much about the person. Like we have to take the person, Alec Murdoch, Absolutely. out of the equation, and it's more about it's more about the process and not the person. It's it's all about the sanctity of the system, the sanctity of the jurors' room, the sanctity of a verdict. Because no one thinks Alec Murdoch's a good guy. No, but you can't have a system flawed. And I, we, I think we talked about when we had Joe on. Is I hate the argument that well, it's going to cost a bunch of money. Well. You've got to get things right, and you can't and you can't pay attention whether you think he did or not because you have to put somebody else in that in that thing, and it can't be about money. You have to get things right. If you're talking about somebody, let's say somebody getting a death penalty, or in this case, life, you have to make sure it's fair. They talk about Juror Six Thirty, and Juror Six Thirty does not attribute their verdict to the statements of Clerk Hill, but rather, she's the one Six Thirty said is the only one that was in the room that says. You know, in, in the state's the affidavit, that the state has an affidavit yeah. from, or She's, the defense has an affidavit and from. And she said she felt pressured by other jurors, and they said, well, that's not enough to 
do you know that right. has no they, bearing on anything. They they cite legal uh, a case where pressure does not overturn a, a verdict. I think we should go to this chart though. To me, that's page twenty one. That was really interesting. So they have this chart with the, the jurors that they have discussed, and they ask three questions of each juror. Hear remarks on evidence by Clerk Hill. The second question they ask is see one-on-one chats by Clerk Hill with jurors. And then the last question is other concerns. Interesting, too, besides their answers, is they aren't the questions that they argued are the ones that should be asked. Yes. Earlier in their brief, they talk about these are the questions that should be asked. Here and, it is. Okay. Uh, was, your, was your verdict guilty on both charges, and is that still your verdict? Was your verdict based on based 100% on the testimony, evidence, and law presented at trial? Was your verdict influenced in any manner by the communications with any bailiffs or any other persons outside the 12-member jury? Did you have communications with any bailiffs or third party not part of the jury? And if so, relay to the court what those communications were. So why didn't they ask those? Right. They have these questions and they have this. So let's just kind of hit some of yeah. the highlights. What, what were your biggest takeaways? 254 is the one who says that they heard, say, watch Murdoch's body language. Right. Which is different is than no. pay, you know, so a lot of these say pay attention. But this, this juror 254, which is not one of the ones mentioned, says watch body language. Mm-hmm. That's important, I would think. There was a one-on-one chat. Juror 326 said she saw a chat regarding financial and child support that someone had with uh, Becky Hill. And she was also given a warning about no graphic uh, a graphic material warning, which I don't... It's fair. I think that to me when we know for sure that there was really graphic stuff seen by those poor jurors. They won't be able to unsee. The 544 and 589 have a problem with uh, Harputlian. 544 said it was warned by counselor, uh, by counselor Harputlian of a subpoena. They did not talk. And 589 said spouse warned by Harputlian. They did not talk. And so they didn't like uh, my take on that is they did not like Dick Harputlian showing up at their doorstep. Now, the lawyer, you know, said that that is makes it sound like it's real pressure type thing. But he said that's not unusual to say you can talk to me now or you might do a subpoena. He doesn't think it's anything. But I don't know how, how I think it might be slightly unusual for a defense attorney to show up at a juror's house. Well, that might be. And I mean, but he and said Dick Harputlian's inter- a little kind of an intimidating person, yeah. I think. Yeah. But he said as far as general practice, he said he's done it as a defense attorney. He's gone to people and said, you can talk or I'll subpoena you. But we also have juror 578 who declined to discuss the case or deliberations. Yeah. I mean, that right there almost seems like you need an evidentiary hearing to find out what this juror mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. refuses to talk to anybody about it. The juror 729 was the one who had the chat regarding financial support, but saw the clerk chat with others. And they could have just been could've benign. Been. She could have been asking them what they what their lunch order was or if they you know were having transportation problems, something along those yes, lines. But at least there was a person backing up a possible one-on-one conversation out of earshot of everyone else. Juror 864, which I thought it was really interesting, that they said it was Creighton Waters in the court argument who told the jury to watch the body language. Did they think of that on their own, or did someone tell them that? That is interesting. because Yeah, because I don't know if that would dawn on me right away. Perhaps they say none of the jurors who willingly interviewed with SLED reported feeling any pressure or influence to reach their verdict. But that, again, is just the ones with SLED. 
It doesn't count Joe McCullough's people. It doesn't count the guy or gal who wouldn't discuss it. Right. Yeah, and we have, I think we should go through, uh, Rebecca Hill had her affidavit, which was attached to this, as well as we have uh, written statements from jury members and court staff. Let's first cover Hill's affidavit, and we we talked about this briefly in our last podcast, but let's go through the highlights. Um, they reference first her communications with juror 630. This is the one represented by Joe McCullough, and she denies lots of different things. She denies telling uh, the jury that not to be fooled, to watch him closely, to look at his actions, uh, to look at his movements. Denying all this. This, sh- this should not take long. And she says that these conversations took place at A26 within earshot of bailiff Bill Polk. There was a, there, one of the allegations is that she had a, she talked to A26 in the bathroom. One of the things that I'm taking it from Gloria No, he said that uh, he's guessing that she probably had some help with her affidavit because she's very specific. Well, she's represented. It's very, she should she, be, yeah. She does, yes. Because when they go on Holly Miller, the, the paralegal's affidavit, in regards to her conversations with juror number 741, she says, I did not have private conversations with juror 826 in a bathroom. Very specific. So she didn't, yeah, very specific. Did not say I didn't have conversations with them, just very specific in the bathroom. And it's like even every single one is, I did not instruct the jury to, quote, watch him closely. Okay, but maybe she said, I'm not saying she did. And another thing she says, like, during the trial, I did not tell members of the jury that the media would want to interview them at the end of the trial. So that's during the trial. So maybe it sounds like she did after the trial. During the trial, I did not hand out business cards of media personnel. Um, so she did. She's very specific again. And then she says she did not tell the jurors. And it's a quote from Holly Miller's affidavit: "Y'all are going to hear things that will, will throw you off. Uh, don't let that this distract or mislead you." What else? She she doesn't she for example she says I she did not tell juror seven eighty five egg juror that she would reinstate a restraining order against her ex husband or that she told her that the Colton County Sheriff's Office personnel went to her ex husband's house and she didn't tell juror seven eighty five that the Murdochs probably got to him she didn't ask her uh, you know her opinions about Mr Murdoch's uh, guilt, and she didn't tell her well what, what makes you think he's guilty. Or forget about the guns; they'll never be seen again. That's something that seventy five said. She said, "Right, basically." Oh, and she also says in regards to juror three twenty six, uh, which was also an affidavit from paralegal Holly Miller. She did not say that she told jurors that they were prohibited from taking a smoke break during deliberations, which had come up as part of the discussion by the defense team was that they weren't letting him have smoke breaks during the deliberation and that that's was that one of the reasons why they made they were hurry felt pressure to make because what there were six six jurors who were smokers i like their smoke in there they were a lot of smokers country. on this jury <laughs> so then let's go through some of the statements uh what did anything strike you there were a couple that was like juror 254 uh Found it very rewarding as a civic duty, but was told to watch his body language. She said she goes, it says here, uh, other than one time, we as a jury was waiting to go into the courtroom and a comment was made to, quote, watch his body language. At that time, I didn't take it any way other than to watch his body language. That comment didn't persuade me, to, but it doesn't say who said it. Right. They heard a comment. It could have been a fellow juror. It could have been, I don't know, but that's pretty big because 254 now is saying that they heard someone say it 
Right. And then what I thought this was a really interesting. This is a hard one to read because it was a different color, but juror 729 tells a little bit about a communication that happened after after the trial said, um, on the day of sentencing, we were approached by Dateline and Miss Hill and asked if if we wanted to do an interview. We told her no, and she seemed disappointed, but let it go. But that was after, right? That was after. Sorry, 572. No one made me feel that I was have to arrive at a quick verdict. And in the morning of the van that her husband told her we were going to Moselle. Oh, and this is the one that puts another, they actually did not retract a juror's name on on this statement. This is 572. I see it, yeah. Yeah. First and last. That's that's a problem. And we also had some statements from court staff. Uh, One person said that they were asked to look through social media for a post regarding a juror speaking out. Um, But most said that they were just doing their jobs. That they, you know, they were busy. And again, I think we had this conversation at the beginning of this. Not everyone saw everything. They weren't all together at the same time. Court staff, different jurors were in different places. And there were seemed to be two jury rooms. I mean, at first we were a little bit confused if maybe this was a bathroom situation. But we ate lunch in that jury room when we filmed the Oxygen oxygen special and there's no way that all those jurors could be crammed into that one space so i do believe that there are probably two separate jury rooms and at very least you would think when they're eating lunch say for instance there's no way they can spread out and eat in that little room i wouldn't think and some of them are talking about um there was a there was a more chatty room and a less chatty room and seemed like maybe the female jurors were in the more chatty room that does not surprise me i would myself be in the chatty room that is that yeah, well, and just a few more things before we... A lot more things, yeah. Yeah, well, a lot more sort things. Sort of a few things. Yeah. We, have a, we have a change of venue request in uh, Alec Murdoch's financial trial, which is set to start the week after Thanksgiving. He's still got 100 financial and drug-related criminal charges. And that's supposed to be held in Beaufort. They are saying no. And there's actually a hearing on Friday of this week. November 27th is the... Yeah, to right? select a jury. Again, this is a little confusing to me about this whole financial trial trial hearing because he's already fessed up to them in the federal court. So we're going through another trial and now they're saying that they don't want this to happen in Beaufort because there's no way he can get a fair trial. I question if there's any way anywhere in South Carolina that people don't know about this case. Maybe it's worse because it's local and a lot of the victims of his financial crimes are connected. connected. Yes. Not necessarily that people haven't heard about it, but they may not be connected. There's 147 juror pretrial questionnaires that re- have been returned saying that potential jurors have prior knowledge about Murdoch. We're, aren't we mentioned in one? Oh, yeah. I, I sent we that to you yesterday. I don't have my phone because yeah, but, we're but recording. Yes, but, but it just one of the questions is, did you... Uh, yeah, it was a lot about media coverage, and they were uh, talked about all the different documentaries and specials, and I think our podcast was mentioned. Yeah, did so. you ever listen to Impact of Influence or something yeah, like that? So. And so they want a change of venue, another county in the 14th Judicial Court, uh, or can even impanel a jury from other counties in the state and transport them to Buford County. Better course action will be continue any and all financial crime trials for at least one year is what they want after the conclusion of the murder trial. They want to wait, they want to push it off a year. Apparently, Griffin contend there's no rush to state court because he's already pled guilty in federal court. He's not going anywhere. If they could get him in federal court. Well, prison. I mean, what remember what John Warren said in our last episode yeah. was it'd be unlikely because he would have to be able to make bail for these financial crimes, which, which he could, which he could not make, the, you know, before the murder charges or conviction. So, it it would not be likely. 
the people we talk to, and it seems to me there's going to be ruling on Judge Newman soon because on the 27th, we're probably going to record this and then we're going to pick up our phones and find out there was a ruling. Yes, <laughs> and yes. And then it's outdated. We'll, we'll jump back in and do it. So that's that. Uh, we'll keep you on top of everything as quickly as we can get it to you. We will do it. We're always super grateful and we love the the feedback, whether it's great or you tell us we suck, whatever it is, we like it. I don't know if we, we like don't it. like that. Okay, we'll <laughs> accept it. We accept it. Okay. Impact of Influence on Facebook. Please uh, rate and comment on the episode. That always helps us. Share the episode with your buddies, and we'll talk soon, friend. Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? <coughs> or just a horrible accident? <coughs> That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave four-year vacation in the plane <coughs> and come home under the plane, <coughs> you've definitely gone on a Slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags, because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do? If someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you, would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.